Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. I'm here at the office of the Arizona Tax Research Association with Sean McCarthy. Sean, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me, Billy. Primary topic for the episode will be school finance in Arizona, specifically emerging trends uh, that are due to impact schools in the next few years and how that should inform policy decisions uh, regarding education funding. I know the elephant on everyone's mind right now is coronavirus and I do want to talk towards the end of the episode about potential impacts on on schools in the short term and long term. Uh, But let's get started with, uh, just for our listeners who might be unfamiliar, uh, what is the Arizona Tax Research Association? What kind of work do you you guys do here? Sure. We're a statewide, nonprofit, nonpartisan, taxpayer watchdog group. So we study state and local government, and then we try to advocate on behalf of taxpayers, particularly at the capital, but also at the local level. And we try to maintain expertise in taxation issues and then key public finance issues. And there's really nothing more important in Arizona than K-12 education. And as as such, it you know consumes the, the biggest pot of funds at the state level. And so it's something that we're always talking about. And so we try to maintain a basis of knowledge of how it's funded and generally speaking, how it works. So you advocate for the taxpayers. Uh, are, are you politically affiliated? Do you lean more towards one ideology or another? So we're certainly nonpartisan. Uh, we are fiscally conservative, and we try to advocate for smart policies as much as possible. I think you'll find us um, on you know different sides of issues depending on what's going on. And uh, much to the frustration of people who think that maybe we're their friends on on other issues. Um, So we try to call them like we see them. And uh, we often say to folks in local governments or people that, you know, work in K-12 schools that we do our best to try to understand what they do and try to understand uh, how they operate. Uh, So that way we can uh, enter these debates with a basis of knowledge. And we're not just out there trying to throw stones at what government does. We understand the government's important and it has to be funded and taxpayers ought to know uh, how it's funded so they can engage in the debate with a degree of information. So you recently published a book uh, of sorts, uh, a book or a manual uh, about Arizona school finance. And uh, just talking before uh, we start recording here, you said this kind of comprehensive research project takes place about once a decade or so. That's right. Yeah, this is the fourth edition. Uh, It was previously written by Dean Miller and then Michael Hunter and then Justin Olson. This is the fourth edition. We do it about once a decade. As far as I understand, it's the only manual of its kind that's kind of a soup to nuts look at not only how schools are financed in Arizona, but how the ta- what taxes support schools, and then you know a little bit of the differences between the different systems, a breakout of M and O versus capital. So it's it's pretty uh, pretty thorough, and it also addresses some issues that are not public, uh, things like ESAs, STOs, and other you know emerging issues, um, and we try to do it in an ideology free setting uh, without any of our atra advocacy uh-huh. so so who is the audience for for this book i mean probably policymakers even even some of the you know the mno the uh esa some of these lingos of just the ordinary voter or, or the ordinary taxpayer might not might already be lost in this in this episode right now but what it, that's right what do you hope that this uh who is sure. this project for who was the audience well, first and foremost, we write it for our members. ATRA has uh, several hundred members, mostly in the business community, and they want to be able to engage 
with the facts and they want to have a degree of understanding of how our system is funded. So our members have long asked for this product. And so we're, we're writing it for them, but we're also writing it for policymakers down at the Capitol. And it becomes a manual that largely everybody who's in the K-12 community is going to have because it, some of this data, yeah. you is you can find it in places, but it's, it's difficult to find it in one right. setting. And so it's for the people who are a little bit interested and uh -huh. people who are a lot of bit interested. So there are summaries and there's simple explanations in some areas, and then it goes much more in depth into other areas. So it, yeah. it runs the gamut as far as who can take away something away. And you, you gave me a copy a few weeks ago, and I appreciate the thoroughness of it. It's very detailed. You get chapters on district general funding, charter funding, capital finance. And I will have to say that before looking through this book, I felt like I had a decent grasp on how Arizona school funding uh, worked. I, you know, read a lot about it, care about it. But once I started going through this in more detail, I, I never even realized how complex the formula was uh, for to you know, get down to the nuts and bolts of, of, of everything. Um, and it seems like it's, it's a little bit difficult to have a informed public discussion about school finance when it's so complex. Um, how big of an obstacle do you think this complexity is when it comes to smart policy making? Sure. Yeah. The complexity, they say, you know, complexity <laughs> is a subsidy, right? And so that it does, it does create a barrier to entry to even understanding it to the point where some people don't even bother with it because they, they don't want to engage on it. And so that in and of itself becomes a hurdle, uh, just a, you know, limitation to the debate, but it's, it's really not why we don't change this. It's a little bit of a misnomer that, well, we haven't really overhauled our system because we don't understand it. There's actually plenty of people who do. There's, you know, there's a number of people that have been in this game for a long time that do understand it well enough. And the reason why it's largely, um, usually doesn't fundamentally change, but just like little iterations here or there is because that each one of the elements of school funding was created by somebody who was well-meaning. And if you try to undo that, you're going to face some opposition. So it's much easier to add ornaments to the Christmas tree than to get rid of the tree and start over. So it's, it's not that people don't understand it. Uh, it's more that these things are, are, were created for a reason. It serves a constituency. And if you try to undo it, then you're, it's going to be very difficult. Um, for instance, in, uh, earlier in his career, Governor Ducey created a task force, and he said, I want to you know, redo the formula and make it simple. I want to get to backpack funding. And so without any new money on the table, I want you to go fix it. And the, essentially the committee came back and said, we're not doing that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's not happening. There's too many problems, and uh, we need more money to do that. And so you know that you know, people who have been well-meaning have – largely failed to quote unquote redo the system or come up with a brand new formula. Are there any proposals recently or anything that you've seen that would be like, here's a, here'd be a smart way to, to simplify this so that there are a lot of, there are a lot of plans out there that imagine the end state. Um, oh. it's, it's the in-between right, right, where it gets right. so there's a lot of advocates out there mm -hmm. who want to suggest backpack funding for instance mm -hmm. every kid should be worth roughly the same amount adjusted for their individual need and wherever public school you show up that's the dollars that follows there it's a really simple concept really difficult to get there we always say at Atra that you can't drain the sea of blue water and fill it up with red water that, uh, that applies to taxation it also applies to how you finance government and so it not only takes, generally speaking, it takes a lot of money 
um, because you're going to have to sort of smooth over rough edges and make sure there aren't too many losers. It also takes a strong degree of political leadership who's going to say that we're going to ignore the opposition and we're going to go right. with this new game plan. That's very difficult in the K-12 community where you're going to have to tell somebody, no, you right. can't have what you want. It's, it's, so it ends up being much easier to make small changes at the margins. So let's take a real-world example of where you know, people might be talking past each other. Very recently, uh, I forget who did this reporting, but I think it was the Arizona Republic found that the average teacher salary increase over the last two years was 8% when it had previously been, you know, the plan was to give 10%. Right. Um, but it, but it's only 8%, and then the accusations are, well, it's the state's fault, or no, it's the district's fault. Mm -hmm. You know, so, something like that, given the complexities here, how do you, how can an ordinary person come to the conclusion of, okay, teachers were promised 10%, we're finding they've only got 8%, whose fault is this? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. So the whole 20 by 20 plan started off with uh, the base year of fiscal 17, and they uh, gave 1% and then 9% raises off of fiscal 17. And so by fiscal 19, the hope was that everybody would get a 10% raise. But there's a lot of complications there. For one, they uh, they did not do what the uh, teachers union proposed, which is create a separate funding stream for teachers and create restricted dollars that had to go there. The state said, no, we're putting it in the base level. And so we're going to give it to LEAs, uh, LEAs being any district or charter and we're going to give it to them and then let them figure it out. And then we're going to encourage them to use that money for teacher pay. And as a little bit of a stick, they said, you're going to have to publish your teacher pay on your website and show what you did year over year. That actually worked out pretty well. If you looked across the board, most districts and charters did the required amount. However, the amounts that were given were for an average. So if your LEA already had above average teacher pay, for example, Chandler Unified, Phoenix Union, just two districts off the top of my head who had above average teacher pay, they didn't get enough money to get the amount. So there's that factor. And then I think the more important factor is that, you know, reportedly there continues to be a lot of teacher turnover and teachers are usually replaced by teachers that make less than the one who left. That churn, that turnover churn is going to impact your uh, cadre of teachers and what they're making in their average. And so I suspected from the beginning that we would not quite hit 20 by 20. And it looks like it's going to be more like 17 by 20. Um, still pretty good. I think, you know, average teacher pay of 52 grand last year uh, strikes me as a, a good step in the right direction. I think it's going to strike a lot of people in the general public, like pretty solid progress. It looks like we're on pace to hit about 55 grand uh, by the end of the 20 by 20 and um, or maybe even more, depending on how well schools get that money into teacher salaries through fiscal 20 and fiscal 21. But uh, yeah, that it won't be a perfect 20 by 20. And I don't think it ever could be. So do you think that do you think that from, from what you're seeing in terms of like admin spending and operation spending versus teacher salaries, uh, are districts in charge being responsible with, you know, being efficient and, and, and doing all they can to give, give teachers the, the raises? Sure. That yeah. That's a classic, given? classic debate, you know, and we, we like to think that a, there's, there's really no way to try to enforce specific levels of spending in different types. And so it's, it's, it's energy that is, is not going to the right place. What we think is that school choice, which is just completely taken off in Arizona, encourages districts to spend the money as best as what makes sense to them. 
And if you waste your money and you're not spending right. it correctly, it's going to um, create problems within your teachers. Parents are going to start to pick up on that. And it's going to create issues for your district. And so it doesn't offend us from a taxpayer level that some districts want to have different models. Maybe your model is higher teacher right. pay and then higher student class sizes. Maybe your model is lower teacher pay and smaller classes. Frankly, I think it's great that LEAs are, are working that out on their own. And so I think that it's it's not only unnecessary to try to worry about exactly how they're spending their money, I don't I don't think you can enforce it. I don't I, I think it would be there's way too many schools, there's way too many LEAs, right. probably not enough auditors to yeah. make it all work. And so I think the market encourages schools to spend the money in the way that makes best sense to them. So sp- speaking on on school choice, which it seems like it's a a constant, you know, point of you know, argument in, in Arizona. Arizona has charter schools for over 25 years. Uh, we have several types of mechanisms where where taxpayers can can divert some of their payments to specific schools or uh, that's in like tax credits, but you also have, you know, private scholarships that people can draw um, tax taxpayer money to pay for in the form of uh, educational savings accounts or ESAs. And the main argument against these school choice initiatives is that they, they drain money from district schools and that they hurt the quality of education there, thus increasing the demand for parents to leave schools maybe and, and, and go to charter schools or, or try to take their money on private schools. Based on the research you've seen, you know, what's your response to that? Are there legitimacy to those concerns? So I think, you know, several things can be true all at the same time as it relates to school choice. From an economic standpoint, there are costs associated with school choice and not having the state tell the parents where to enroll their children. Um, and there are also economic costs associated with students just going to an assigned school. If the only goal was to limit cost and to drive as much dollars as possible to the staff that run schools, then you wouldn't have any school choice at all. You would say, we're only going to build exactly the number of schools that we have, and we're going to divvy it up by zip code or area, and we're going to tell all the kids where to go to school. That's how you would that's how you would maximize employee pay at schools. Um, but I think there's an economic trade-off of doing that, and I think that that's witnessed out in the data. And so I'm I'm a favor of school choice because I think that the economic benefit of allowing parents to put their child in a school that's going to work better for them is going to create a lot of other benefits that that you can measure in a, in the form of students being happier and and excelling at, at where they, where they're most comfortable. So it, um, I know that folks in the, in the charter world and the school choice world in particular get uncomfortable when I talk about these costs, but make no mistake. I, I think that the benefits outweigh the cost, but if you just look at it from a big picture standpoint, prior to 2000, there's a ton of growth in Arizona and almost all of that from a pupil standpoint benefited large school districts in the state. The vast majority of kids were showing up into districts. They were building new schools. They were filling up schools, and they would build another school. That was the environment we lived under. As charters started to get more popular you know, in the 2000s, open enrollment also started to get more popular. There, the, the trends started to go to this diaspora where students are going everywhere. And beginning in 2007, district enrollment stopped growing. 
and it actually has been contracting the last several years. That's totally changed the framework of of how our, our district schools in particular have operated. And if you look at it, that's about the time when teacher and, uh, and pay started to stagnate. As, a, as districts started to lose money overall, it's very difficult to contract your cost, particularly in an environment where special ed costs are going up, healthcare yeah. costs are going up, ASRS costs are going up. Um, so, you know, districts were seeing costs related to ERE or employee-related expenditures. They're seeing ERE costs go up everywhere, but their enrollment is either slowed or contracted. And you're not necessarily witnessing a lot of cost reduction because you're still operating the same number of schools as you were. So that that created a lot of pain. And so objectively speaking, we can say that school choice comes with a cost. And I tell that to lawmakers all the time that, you know, for better or for worse, the system probably does cost more with mass open enrollment. And that's probably okay. I think you can make a convincing argument to taxpayers that you're going to have to open your wallet and pay for this because the alternative, you know, is a system yeah. that nobody wants. Counterpoint to that, I think would be maybe there's a difference between charter schools and open enrollment, which is, you know, people and, and students going to different types of public schools. So that's, you know, that's one thing. But the other element to our system is that we are taking taxpayer money um, upwards if I just try to add up the total of ESA and, 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 and the scholarship um, tax credits up to $250 million a year. Um, and that is stuff that instead of, instead of going directly to the public schools are being, um, I mean, they would say siphon, but it's, it's not going to the public schools. You're allowing people to, to take that money and go to a private school. Well, you could say, well, those are, those are pupils that are not now, and you don't need to pay for them, those, those kids' educations at public school, but it also is, you know, draining resources sure you could say so how yeah. i mean should we be thinking about those should we be thinking about open enrollment charter schools as a different category than than esas and and stos yeah i think you want to try to take them as they come because they're all very different the whole argument behind stows was that hey we're gonna allow people to make a donation that they get back on a tax credit and that will keep a student from darkening the public door, right? And then being a cost. And so, you know, at a at a cost of whatever the credit was, that is an entire student body, you know, m meaning an entire student pupil that doesn't have to be educated in the system, providing a net savings to the system. And that was the that was the justification for Stowe's. Uh, and certainly it does uh, represent a cost to your system overall. And who knows how many of those those students would still stay in private if you didn't have that program? It, yeah, it's really kind of impossible to know what what would happen there. Um, you know, and then with with ESAs, that's a, a little bit different because they're they're taking much closer to the amount that would otherwise fund them at a, at a school. Um, you know, for decades, one of the arguments related to special ed funding in particular was that these these students cost more to educate than you're providing for oh. us. And so that was one of the justifications for CSA is say, well, if these students are so expensive for you to educate, then we'll take them out. Right, of right, right. That should be a net benefit mm -hmm. from you. And so from, from that perspective, you know, the, I think it's more than half the students in ESAs are, are sped, you know, that, that could also be viewed as a savings to the systems because of how expensive special ed students are. So, you know, I try to take those all separately and, and individually and, and look at them. I, you know, we, we tend not to 
be too, um, you know, overly engaged on, on the ESA issue or the so issue. We try to just, you know, take those ones straight up and try to describe them as we yeah, see yeah, them. Yeah. And, and special education has, has been incre- the, the amount of, of students that have been diagnosed and, and are, are, are getting extra, you know, funding weights for special ed has increased dramatically over time. Right. How, um, and that's one of the as we're kind of transition here to talk about some of the emerging trends that you that you write about and analyze. Uh, that's that's one of them that that I notice is like that's that's a lot more money that's that's being spent on that. Sure. Um, and what are so you talk about a lot of uh, emerging trends, um, and we can touch on a few of them here. But what what are you, some of the ones that you think are the most pressing, or, or the ones that Arizona taxpayers uh, and policymakers should have in their minds, like big picture right now. Sure. Well, just to follow up on the SPED discussion, uh, based on the uh, reporting that I did in the in the book, the uh, population of school children qualifying for SPED has grown roughly 35% over the last decade, which is pretty incredible because the overall system has not grown much from a pupil standpoint in the last decade. Um, and so that's driving a lot of new formula costs, but it's also driving costs for the LEAs that are educating these students. They're also bunching in in schools in ways that they did not do in the past, which is undermining the way the system is funded. And the system was funded that these students would be spread out. And so to the extent that they're clustering, that's, um, that's undermining the system and putting additional burden on some schools that are uh, honestly probably doing a particularly good job with them, which, which is, is why students are, are clustering there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's very expensive. And the costs are going up all the time. I think it's very difficult for LEAs to justify not doing things the way that their peers might be doing the things. And so I think that that causes some pressure to yeah. to have the latest and greatest methods of dealing with it. And so that's coming out of hide largely for for LEAs uh, that are educating a lot of special ed students. So, you know, that that's just one of them. Um, and I think just enrollment overall is, is really interesting. For, for decades, we were a growth state. And for the vast majority of, of LEAs, when you came in to start your next budget year, you knew you were starting off with more because you were going to have more students. And even if the overall budget environment wasn't going up by a lot, or maybe you didn't think that the per-pupil funding from the state wasn't much, at least it was more. And that's always a much easier budgeting environment to be in. But if you look at enrollment you know, starting in 2007, uh, it's been negative as often as it's been positive for, for district schools. Uh, and as I mentioned before, that's that's really difficult if your realized costs haven't gone down. Um, and so you often hear folks representing a school or a district say, hey, well, our budget was cut this year. And people who are watching would say, well, how, how could that be if overall funding went up? Well, it's probably because their enrollment went down. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to that because it's really difficult to, to, pu- to budget in that environment. But more of that is coming. And, and districts are going to have to learn to be flexible. They're going to have to face those hard choices. There was an article in the paper the other day where Phoenix Elementary wanted to vote to have a discussion ab- about closing through schools, not even vote to do it. They just wanted to go into <laughs> the planning because Phoenix Elementary has lost 35% of yeah. its students in the last decade. And they absolutely need to uh, at least temporarily close up some schools to be more efficient. And the community was in uproar. 
And so they voted it down to not so even they, have the discussion. They didn't want to talk about what they did to not do want about to have, that. and that is that is a fatal decision for any organization. Right. Well, I mean, what are some of the solutions? I mean, could you could you have like multiple schools operating in the same campus and then close and sell a campus off, or how would you? There's there's any number of options, and 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 they should be looking to schools and states that have witnessed this. Um, you know, in the past thirty years. I think almost half the states have actually lost K-12 enrollment. And so this is not a new phenomenon. It's happened a lot. And it's not something entirely new for most folks in the school world. They, maybe they haven't dealt with it district-wide, but certainly dealt with it at, at you know individual schools that uh, are no longer right-sized and are too small to be operating efficiently. And that's kind of the, the ultimate question is, what, what you know what's the right size of each particular school? Where can you operate it efficiently? And that, you know, what, Where's the market going right. in that particular area? It may be that that school is better suited um, to be, you know, used for storage or temporarily mothballed. You know, it could be that the neighborhood is going to turn over in twenty years, but it's not happening today. And so, um, I understand that you know, if you're a district, the last thing they want to do is lease to a charter or a private school because, in their minds, you're just going to lose students faster than you're yeah. already losing them. So there's no doubt that they don't want to do that. But just running it at 50% or 40% occupancy is probably not a good use of money. The other emerging trend that really caught my attention is the retirement account contribution uh, rate. So, you know, just for me, I mean, I was working at a, a charter school contributing to a 401k for, for a few years, and then they, they switched and started, uh, they converted it to, a, you know, to the Arizona yes, retirement yeah. system. And right when that happened, I mean, the, the contribution rate is 11%. So, so that for me, that came right as the raises were coming, and it actually lowered my take-home pay because it, you know, it's, sure. it's the increasing cost of of the contribution rate, and and that has gone up from what like three percent over the years to eleven percent. Maybe mm-hmm. it's going to be a higher percentage yeah, in the future. Twelve now. Yep, it's and, it's real and it's a problem. And so what? And then you know, especially for you know younger teachers who might not see themselves you know wanting to teach thirty years and retiring, or maybe someone later in later in life that might want to get into it, but they're like, well, that's 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 a lot coming out of of my take home pay. Why is this happening? Why? Sure. It's it's a lot of different reasons all at the same time. The the two recessions in the 2000, the 2001 recession, then the Great Recession, you know, severely undercut the funds requiring these higher contribution rates, and the market has recovered since then in great deals, notwithstanding what's happening in the last couple of weeks here. But that has not been enough to get out from underneath the unfunded liability. And one of the biggest changes is the lack of growth in new entrants. These these systems are good when they work. Um, however, they are dependent upon new entrants and growth in your overall system. So just for example, between 1980 and, and 1999, there was a 74% increase in ASRS membership. And between 99 and 2019, there was only 18% growth. So our overall public employee sector has not grown very much in the last 20 years relative to the 20 years before that. So our predecessors that came before us that were paying 3%, they were operating on a system that was much more like a Ponzi scheme. We have just Uh new entrants coming all the time, paying for a smaller group of retirees. Well, that's not happening anymore. We don't have this massive government employee group paying for a much smaller retiree group. So as those things start to balance out, it's going to cost more to run the system overall. And you're right, it hurts take-home pay. 
So in addition to increasing healthcare costs, the increases to ASRS um, mean, you know, and then the average teacher has student debt, which right. wasn't the case 20 years ago. So, um, you know, for, I think when people ask me, why, why do you think the teachers walked out? I say, I think it's because of take home pay. You know, if you look at what their advertised pay was, I don't think it strikes a lot of people as that bad relative to what they would think a teacher should make. You know, if you told people the average pay is now 52000 at least for district schools, I think a lot of people would say, well, yeah, that, that doesn't strike me as that odd given the expectation. But then when you factor in student loans, ASRS, um, if they're taking a, a, par- a portion out for health care, now you're looking at a take-home pay, particularly for new, brand new teachers that are on the lower end of that average that are starting at 36 or 38 or whatever. You take all that stuff out, and they're probably living with a roommate, yeah. and that's not what they imagined when they went to college. Yeah. And so I saw when I saw the teachers walk out two years ago, I saw a lot of young teachers, a lot of young frustrated teachers in their late 20s saying, "I didn't go to school, so I could still be in my late 20s and." you know, basically having to live with somebody else to make it work. And so that, that's what I saw. And that, that's a lot of all these things sort of catching up with each other. I mean, but the solutions are going to be kind of tricky because, you know, as soon as you start to to talk about reforming it, you know, it's like, well, are you trying to privatize, are you trying to take away my retirement? Are you trying to privatize it? That's, that's scary for people, especially, you know, when you see the, when you see the markets fluctuating so rapidly sometimes. Yeah. Um, There are no easy solutions when it comes to the defined benefit plan. I mean, if you, suggest, well, hey, how about we let teachers opt out? And, you know, if they don't want to pay into this program, they can just not do it. Well, now you've just um, exacerbated the point that I said earlier about lack of growth. Mm. The system is based on member entrance and coming in. So if you let the teachers out and say, hey, you can opt out of ASRS, now you've just made it more expensive on the people that are still in the system, Mm. right? So, you know, and there's ways that you maybe could draw that up to where there would still be an amount they'd have to pay for them, the cost of them exiting the system. But, there, there are no easy answers to reducing the amount other than putting a ton of money into it. And I think in general, citizens and taxpayers are already frustrated with these defined benefit plans, given how expensive they are and the fact that only the public gets them. So asking the taxpayers, yeah. citizens to pay a bunch more into a system that they won't really benefit from is politically toxic. And it's, I mean, it's, it's tough because that's, that's not – even though it draws so much money and, and cuts take-up pay, it's also an incentive for teachers to stay in the profession is like, okay, I'm I'm putting up with this now, but when I retire, you know, it's going to have this kind of defined benefit. That's that's kind of like I think teachers, you know, like that security of that. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, what is the what is well, the way out? <laughs> you know, I think for teachers, you know, they, they need to – you know, keep their chin up. I think, you know, it, it, I know it's hard, particularly when you're young and you're not making much, but you know, if you stick with it, it is a very valuable annuity. You know, it's worth over a million dollars by the time you retire. And that's something that's kind of security that a, a lot of Americans won't have. I laugh down at the Capitol cause there's all these people I work with down here that are still, still working down here into their sixties and seventies. Uh-huh. There's no defined benefit for a lot of them. And so that keeps people working late in the age. So it is it is still very valuable. And you can also transition to other forms of government and keep it going. You could work cities, counties, the state. Do you think we will find a way to to though help it be more solvent and 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 also keep the keep the benefit? Is is that even possible? 
I think th- I think the benefit will hang around because it is so popular. But no, I don't think there is any easy solution to make it more solvent. I think it's just uh, stay in the course. I mean, for instance, let's say this state just exploded with more money than it knew, knew what to do with. And someone said, why don't we give a billion dollars to ASRS to help it out? You would not meaningfully change the contribution rate. It's a $38 billion system. Right. If you gave a billion dollars to ASRS and said, here, lower your contribution rates, they would probably lower them by a very unsatisfactory wow. amount. Or unsatisfying amount. Well, um, let's finish with this question. It seems like every every hour, every two hours, uh, some some different comes out about uh, the impact of coronavirus and how people are responding to it. Um, I know a lot of school employees, teachers, parents are are thinking about how that might affect them. How do you see this playing out, maybe in the short term and in the long term for Arizona schools? Well, I think, first of all, the great news is that it doesn't seem to be particularly harmful to children. And so that's that's great that it doesn't look like we should have to do anything too drastic as it relates to children. So that's a blessing. Um, <clears throat> you know, from school finance perspective, if this chaos lasts a long time and it creates a lot of you know negative impacts, then it's going to impact the, the state fisc, which ultimately impacts the schools in some way or another. Uh, so, you know, hopefully this is a, a short-lived crisis that won't have too big of a fiscal impact on the state. I think overall the, you know, Arizona economy is very healthy, um, notwithstanding this. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if this doesn't turn out to be, you know, a international calamity and by the time people are hearing this, maybe they'll <laughs> see what a silly statement this is, <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think Arizona could recover from this and, and kind of move on this may more likely impact other spending priorities of the state that are not as high of a priority as k-12 i i would imagine that the k-12 budget is going to get passed based on the baseline to include a lot of the increases that were already promised such as the last installment of 20 by 20 da restoration um, and so I can't imagine those things um, being at the chopping block if they were to downstroke the revenue estimations for next year. Yeah, I think it's it's easy to be reactionary and say shut out all the schools until this blows by. But, you know, um, because kids can be, even though they don't get it themselves, they can be kind of carriers. And, and you know, it, I think teachers have this ethos of like coming to work even when you're sick. And I think you see a lot of sniffling kids all the time at school. But, um, you know, then you have the effects of, you know, what about the kids that get their get their meals every day at school? What about, um, you know, kids that don't have online? What about parents that are going to have to stay home? And it's just uh, – um, there's no easy. I don't yeah, think there's any easy solutions to hit. that. Yeah. It's quite the economic hit when schools close. I mean, uh, maybe it's yeah. worth it, but that's. I mean, yeah. that's above my my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly above mine as well. I just hope that um, whatever happens, uh, you know, that people are doing it, you know, with uh, with a little bit of you know caution in mind and not being um, overreacting. We're we're talking here uh, on Thursday, and uh, it does appear to be that within the last 24 hours, right. there's been a lot of reaction. Some of which. I, I'm not sure about, but uh, I by no means have expertise in this area. Right. But, but uh, you know, from what I do have expertise in, I don't think, you know, K-12 funding will be the first to draw blood if this were to impact the state's economic health. Well, uh, Sean, how can people get a copy of this 
school finance book if they want it. Yeah. So it, just to call in the office here at Arizona Tax Research is the best way to do it. Right now, we only have it in hard copy. And so we have them all here. So if anyone out there is interested in a copy of our book, again, it's a 100-page manual complete with a lot of charts and graphs. It's very visual. Uh, there's not a page that goes by. It doesn't have something that kind of visually explains what it's talking about. And so very useful for anybody sort of involved in this. And just call the office. Uh, you can Google us um, at Arizona Tax Research. Also follow us on Twitter at AZ Tax Research. Uh, we put out a lot of free content there that people can follow up on. And uh, yeah, it's appreciate the plug. All right, Sean, thanks. Appreciate your time. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks everyone for listening to the Political Notebook. You can find us on any podcasting app, Overcast, Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. <laughs>